Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we started during this work-from-home period, and what we're really trying to do is replicate the experience that we provide at our global SALT conferences. And what we try to do at our conferences and on these SALT Talks is to provide a window in the minds of subject matter experts, which are primarily investors, entrepreneurs, and public policy thinkers. We're also trying to provide a platform for what we think are big, important ideas that are shaping the future and bring you interesting investment opportunities as well. Uh, and we're very excited today to welcome Peter Glaistein to SALT Talks. Uh, Peter is the founder of AGL Credit, and he brings more than 40 years of bank loan experience to SALT Talks today. Uh, before AGL, he had two prior employers, starting with J.P. Morgan Chase, and then more recently CIFC, a loan asset manager that he founded. Uh, at the bank, this included being the lead banker on many of the largest LBO, M&A, and restructuring financings in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, running global loan syndications, responsibility for its global corporate loan portfolio, and serving as the corporate chief credit officer. Uh, more recently, he built CIFC Asset Management into a leading private debt manager with $13 billion in assets under management, and he served as its founder and CEO from 2005 to 2014. A reminder, if you have any questions for Peter during today's talk, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. And hosting today's talk is Skybridge Capital Partner, a co-chief investment officer and senior portfolio manager, Troy Gajewski. Troy, I'll turn it over to you for the interview. Yeah, thanks so much, John. And, you know, Peter, it's such an honor to have you here. And John went through your very impressive resume uh, way too briefly because we're time constrained. But, you know, as we start the salt talks, we always like to focus on more of the human side of the investment manager or the guest. And could you give us a little input on your past, some of the decisions you made that led you to have this rich career, and if there were any seminal moments that were particularly important? Yes, and thank you for that uh, very fulsome um, introduction. I think the most important thing that drove my life and career has been the fact that I grew up internationally. My father was a U.S. diplomat. So through my childhood up through college, I moved every couple of years, went to schools in, in different societies and different languages, uh, living in countries like Indonesia, the Soviet Union, twice the then Soviet Union, uh, France. I'm half Swedish. My mother was Swedish, is Swedish, was Swedish. Uh, the reason I say that or why that's so important was so important to me is I learned early uh, that the same reality can be experienced, perceived and expressed completely differently by different people in different cultures, different languages. So that was an early lesson, made me very interested. And in, in, in fact, it was kind of, I guess, a survival uh, requirement for me to understand not just what I thought of something, but what was the underlying reality. So it made me really interested to understand how things work uh, below the surface. So when I was looking for a job, graduating from college, I was trying to find something you know, that would be stimulating, interesting. And I, I, I decided I really would go somewhere where I could learn more about how the world got stitched together. And the, the only conclusion that I found appealing was uh, through finance, where you can see how uh, social and economic interactions occur, albeit through the lens of credit in a bank. And by going to a bank, I, I didn't have to pay to go to business school because I was effectively paid to go to, to learn. And that's why I started in banking. I'll just add that I was very fortunate um, 
to have joined what was then called Chemical Bank because it was the bank, as many people know, that acquired most of the other banks in New York and other places and kept changing its name. But I was always on this in the same place. So that, that accounts for the long career continuity that I've had, uh, both in organizationally and in terms of um, my expertise, which is uh, bank credit. Um, more, most critically, I'll just I'll speed up and then stop. Um, in the mid 80s, I was the co-founder of what became the leverage finance and syndications business. John mentioned that part of my background, but but I've been personally directly. Let me just add, um, when I say co-founded, that was with uh, the great banker, the late Jimmy Lee. Um, so I actually knew him since I started because we were both in the same training program together in 1975. Uh, but in any event. Um, I've been part of bank credits long before it became an asset class and part of its evolution every step of the way into it now being a uh, very mature um, and well-tested institutional asset class. Well, that's quite an impressive background. Peter, I'll tell you, I haven't heard the term chemical bank in quite some time. I think the last time we used to bandy that about was before John Darcy was born, you know, so let's go way back. My right, friend. right. <laughs> So, hey, obviously you have tremendous expertise in the broadly syndicated loan market, um, and that's a very keen focus of your firm. Could you explain to the investors and those that aren't invested in the space why you find it attractive and what are some of the key characteristics now, particularly relative to other asset classes out there in corporate credit? Um, yes, that's a great question. And I'll just start by making the- Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you very much. Yeah. A big <laughs> statement that- Broadly <laughs> um, syndicated loans, uh, frankly, are misunderstood. It's a, it's a, it's actually a superior asset class, but it's really widely misunderstood. But let me start. I, I started with the fact that I started in banking. So uh, if a bank's making a corporate loan, let's go back to old-fashioned banking. You put in a deposit, you expect it to be 100% safe, and that if you want to take the money out, you take it out. What do the banks do? Um, they invest and try to invest in very safe assets. Um, so the assets are bank loans are senior, they're secure, they have priority over any other capital in the capital structure. But the, the key point, when I say misunderstood, um, the asset class is not a loan. It's hundreds or thousands of loans. It's the combination and the power of the earnings power of the net interest income of the entire portfolio that generates the stable, very steady eddy cash flow. And more importantly, that diverse universe of borrowers creates the safety. But let's say you have uh, 200 loans and two or four of them become a real problem. Um, well, that's two or four loans. Um, and if the, um, if the loans on average are generating before a LIBOR, before the reference rate, say 5%, and if the loss given default or the loss that you would realize on a loan is half of 1%, those losses are easily covered just by your net interest income. So the, the underlying capital that's invested, whether you're a bank making a loan or an investor investing in this asset class, the, the principal invested, the capital is never really at risk if the portfolio is competently selected and managed. And there's this steady cash flow stream. So then you're going to ask, well, why do banks get in trouble? Why do people get in trouble? Why do people do stupid things? Well, in the case of credit, you can you can make a couple of mistakes. You can first of all have high concentrated risk, meaning instead of having 200 or 300 loans, having let's say three or 30, 
and, and worse if you put them all in the same sector. Um, and the other is to misprice risk. And, and God help you if you do both. If you've concentrated risk that's mispriced, and that's historically how banks and investors get into trouble. But if you do the reverse, which is not hard to do, frankly, which is why I still do it. Why would I? I'm still doing it because it's. Why would I not? It's. It's the. Um, it's for me. It's the gift that keeps giving because it's. It's safe and it's really interesting. By the way. Yeah. So Peter, could you touch upon the term senior as well? Because even today we find people don't understand how important it is to be a senior in the capital structure versus second lien or what's commonly referred to as the high yield bond market. Certainly. So. Um, it's analogous to a home mortgage. If one gets a mortgage, buys a house, God forbid, if you don't make the payment, the, the bank can take the house from you. And whether the mortgage was 10% or 50% or 70% of the value of the home, they get the whole thing. And, and they can, in, in the case of a home mortgage, uh, sell the property if there's anything left over, you, the owner, will, will get the residual. It's the same with senior secured loans, which typically are between 40 and 50% of the total capital structure of a borrower. So if there's a problem, um, a, a dire problem, where actually for the bank and the lender and its associated investors like us uh, to recoup their capital, uh, there's typically a 50% value cushion underneath. And for the for this broadly syndicated bank loan to lose money, that means everything underneath is wiped out. So there's a huge cushion. You then amplify that by investing in not one loan, but say 250 loans. Um, you just have this, for those who are statisticians, you can, you can, you can see how, how that distribution of, of, of hundreds of borrowers and just a few problems and mistakes um, are easily supported by the earnings power and the safety of the whole portfolio. So, Peter, you're making a compelling case for the attractive risk reward of this asset class, which, you know, has been syndicated now for, I guess, about 20 years, really going back to, you know, early 2000s. Um, could you talk about what type of investors are gravitating towards it and, and how they're using it to potentially replace traditional fixed income right now? Yes. Yeah, so, um, frankly, um, not many. N not many. I mean, the asset, asset class has grown. Um Broadly syndicated loans, it's about $2 trillion. That's roughly $1.2 trillion held by non-bank investors and the balance by the originating banks, usually in the form of revolving credits, but the same uh, borrowing framework. Um, but the uh, it's because it's not a traditional asset class um, um, in the following, following couple of ways. First, they're not securities. They're loans. I'll come back to that. Um, and and they're originated by banks, so you you can only access them um, by investing if you're a long-term investor with a manager like us, who's investing in these loans. And there are also some managers who have retail funds. Um, the appeal to retail historically has been because bank loans are floating rate, floating rate. They've always been um, appealing when people were expecting interest rates to rise, and when interest rates are falling or low, um, most retail investors actually kind of sell. So it's it's not a, it's not something that um, is an easy easy sales pitch for what I'll call an institutional sales force um, in the retail brokerage world that's is interacting 
interacting with investors. And it's not something that you can buy on an exchange because they're not securities. Um, another thing about um, bank loans is they're highly unstandardized. Um, each one is different. It's customized by the original bank, originating bank, um, to that specific borrower and what they're using the money for. So it's highly customizable. It's also one of the reasons why the returns are so high because uh, compared to almost anything else, there's a lot of excess return in bank loans. But institutional investors, institutional investors, like everybody, um, especially in this era of low interest rates and credits traditionally viewed as a fixed income type of investment, um, institutional investors want safety. They want a meaningful, robust, robust cash yield, um, which, which increasingly you can't get in traditional fixed income products. Um, and people are noticing that if bank loans actually have that. And when I say they have that, um, while rates now are near zero, including LIBOR, which is the reference rate for bankly syndicated loans, uh, syndicated bank loans, the, the actual cash distribution that you would get if you owned a portfolio of broadly syndicated bank loans is the same or higher than it has been because credit spreads actually have widened and have offset the decrease in LIBOR. So here you have a product that's continuing to provide a thick, robust, slightly higher cash coupon where everything else is kind of near zip. So it's attracting a lot more interest. Um, I could, I'll, I'll add one more thing, which is that um, uh, most institutional investors have traditionally viewed um, the five-ish percent that I mentioned that the, a bank loan portfolio throws off as not interesting enough. Um, but they like it when you apply leverage to it, which is why CLOs have emerged as such a large product. You know, there's like seven or 800 billion of CLOs outstanding holding fairly syndicated bank loans. And the leverage, which can be as high as 10 times, you can have less leverage structures and you specialize in that actually, um, magnifies the great attributes of broadly syndicated bank loans, which are safety, a strong cash distribu distribution or a coupon, and also liquidity. I haven't mentioned that bank loans are liquid. Um, I'll come back to that if we have time in a second. Um, but those attributes, those three attributes, safety, cash, and liquidity can be magnified by applying leverage. The leverage though, you want it to be non-mark to mark. You want it to be long-term leverage where the, that leverage that debt is repaid only by portfolio cash flows, not by price changes in the underlying assets. You know, that's like a margin call, that's a bad thing. But CLOs have this terrific long-term structure and increasingly investors, um, you know, now for quite a while have been um, investing in this. And, and I think given where interest rates are there, there's gonna be a lot more, more interest. So Peter, along those lines, before we get into CLOs, which we will in a second, can you lay out what the total return differential is right now versus a portfolio of syndicated bank loans like your own versus you know, the 10-year treasury yield or, or LIBOR or even vanilla high-yield bonds? Sure. Without getting into the other asset classes, because you know, those are well-known levels starting with near zero for, you know, for short-term treasuries. Um, so at the, at the asset class level, if you just had an actively managed portfolio for the syndicated bank loans, including LIBOR, which is like 20, 30 basis points as opposed to 3%, like really low, um, you're getting five to six, you can, you can get five to 6%. It depends on the manager and 
the portfolio strategy could be lower, it could be higher, but call it five to six percent. If you add leverage to that, um, you go with CLO level leverage. Um, the let me hit the pause button. By doing that, the investor who wants the highest return is investing underneath the debt that's providing the leverage. So they're the junior capital. So there's one part junior capital and nine parts debt on top of you. But if you're that junior capital investor, instead of getting the five to 6% return, you can get, um, in my experience, 18 to over 20% or, or more of a beta kind of a thing, I would say 12 to 15%, but definitely in the teens. So for people who are saying like five's too low and I want teens, CLOs are really interesting. And by the way, um, there's some good research that indicated that if every seal that's ever been issued since the first one, I think this is Wells Fargo research, there's been a positive IRR to the equity for that junior layer, meaning they got their capital back with some kind of return on over 98% of every CLO that's ever been issued. I mean, that's an astonishing statistic for people who don't think they're safe. They're not safe if you have to sell. Um, let me just make the point that whether you're investing in bank loans straight up or with some degree of leverage, those great attributes of ongoing cash flow generation, consistent safety, and liquidity to fine-tune the portfolio. Those are things that are advantages and create steady eddy returns and safety over time. If you suddenly have to sell, need liquidity for redemption reasons, or worse, have a market value-based debt and have to sell because prices change, that's a bad thing. So this is this is a product that that I think very strongly is really only for long-term investors. And, and, and then you get all these great advantages, which leverage only magnifies. Um, I'll, I'll add that um, we know uh, global investors might type in individually quite well. And kind of the sweet spot for most investors um, is a seven to 8% return. Now to get that, they do a wide spectrum of investments, call it a mosaic or a tapestry, private equity, timberland, high yield bonds, um, just every asset class you can imagine, hoping that the combination of them over time hits that seven to 8%. For the safety reasons and the consistent cash flow reasons that I was describing, um, you can get that using a CLO strategy by using a little leverage, not a lot, say two times, two times leverage. Uh, will generate um, pre-COVID, it was generated kind of an 8, 8% plus return. Um, all in partly syndicated loan returns have step shifted up since. So a new investor going in now at counterintuitive, this is actually a great time to invest in this asset class because there's more return for risk. So with around two turns of leverage, uh, the return opportunity is around 9%, which a little bit of a cushion to that kind of magic 7% that most people want. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. And speaking of not selling, let's go back to March, right? Where many structured credit assets, including CLOs and level loans, suffered substantial losses, despite the fact that the fundamental credit quality was still sound. And the question of whether you would realize your cash flows was very much settled. So do you think it makes sense for markets to be focused too much on liquidation value in times like March or April or going back to Q4 of 08 after Lehman failed? Or, or do you think it makes sense to look longer term at the power of the cash flows compounding over time? That's a great question. And, and I think you just answered it at the end. 
Because did, I, did I lead on that one, Peter? Did I lead on that one a little that bit? Ex- that was excellent because the, the value, of the, the strength and the value of the product, again, and as I said, it's really for long-term investors, is that forward cash earnings power that's safe. That's safe. Um, so it's, it's the ability to hold something long-term that every quarter is going to generate cash. And if you hold that investment, you're going to be just getting that cash. And incidentally, for an actively managed portfolio, in our experience and certainly our expectations going forward, there's also an opportunity um, to generate um, realized capital gains. Um, so it's both cash plus a little upside down the road. Um, if, if you're panicked or if you're forced to sell for whatever reason, um, especially in, in like, like March when prices almost instantly collapsed along with everything else as the markets went through a, a bubonic plague type panic that quickly fortunately abated. Um, if, if you were selling, you know, it was terrible um, um, because there was no bid. So the, if you're selling when there's no one buying, of course, prices plummet. But back to the core question of valuation, the liquidation value of something, even if, if you say, well, let's say the liquidation value for a loan is 100 cents and the principal is 100 cents, the loan is, is, is $1 or 1 million or 100 million. If you can sell it for that amount, that's certainly fair value. Uh, but if you do that, you're, you're foregoing the opportunity for that future earning stream that I was describing. Now, if the market, because it's frightened, or by the way, markets, the most markets, certainly the broadly syndicated loan markets, driven by three interwoven factors that sometimes are, one of them dominates, those are uh, fundamentals, what's really going on in the economy in each borrower, market technicals, the balance of supply and demand of, in, of, of investors buying and selling, and sentiment. sentiment. So in March, we had sentiment, we had panic. So if the price of a loan that's eventually going to repay 100 cents is selling for 80 cents, um, not only are you foregoing giving up that forward earnings power of that asset that's worth 100 cents, but you're taking a 20 cent loss. So, so it's, um, it's a terrible way to value um, probably any asset that certainly has earned, that is forward earnings power, but certainly broadly syndicated loans. That's not to say there is an important value to market prices because there is. You do want to know what it's worth, especially if you did have to sell, and especially if you want to optimize the portfolio and buy something to improve the risk profile or return targets, especially if there's if loans are cheap, which which they are now, by the way, and you want to be a buyer and 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 lower prices are are a good thing in that context. Um, but but there's a difference between. Um, performance valuation and, and liquidation. Yeah, so seg- segueing back into CLOs, and we were talking about this before we started the session, you know, the broadly syndicated loans, roughly 95, 96 cents in the dollar right now, double B CLOs, roughly 83 cents in the dollar. Can you talk about why you think there's still that big price discrepancy, even though we don't know an analyst or a credit market participant now that would argue that double Bs are not money good, right? You, people debated, hey, March, April, maybe you do get some double Bs cracking, you have enough high enough cumulative defaults, you have low enough recovery rates, but that was really settled by June and July. You still have this massive price disparity. So what, what do you think drives that when it's clearly not fundamental value? 
Um, that's a really good question. Um, I would I would say a couple of things. And, and by the way, I'm on a roll, Peter. I'm on a roll. Yeah. You know, as everyone probably knows, who's listening to us, that that I'm not without opinions. Um, so uh, in CLOs, as I was describing before, above the junior capital, the so-called equity layer, um, there, there are various levels of debt. And, and all these layers or tranches are rated. And most of the debt is AAA. Roughly two-thirds of the capital structure in the CLO is AAA debt. That's really cheap, attractive debt. But there are all these other slices, the single-A slice, triple B, double B, and you're talking about the double Bs. The, the, the top end, the two-thirds at the top, the AAA asset, by the way, so AAA, you know, what, what do you get paid if, if and, and this is long-term debt with no market value triggers and also with short non-call periods, which is very favorable optionality for the junior capital so-called equity. Um, those, the AAA is mainly held by banks as long-term investors, insurance companies, and some pension funds. Um, when you get to the triple and double B layer, so-called the mezzanine layer of CLOs, those are main, mainly held by credit hedge funds. Um, and, and it makes sense that when, if you go back to the math I was describing, if two thirds of all the debt is AAA, there's not much debt left anymore. And if you take that, and then if the bottom layer is 10%, that leaves like 23%. If you take that 23% and divide it between AA, single A, triple B, double B, maybe single B, each of those tranches is really small. So of course it makes sense that um, credit hedge funds can invest it because these are not big amounts. Um, so they're at, they're traded, they're, they're they're held not in long-term hands. So if a bank's investing in a AAA that has a 10-year final maturity, you know they're making an investment decision that that could be there for 10 years. Uh, but the mezzanine investors are trading um, um, oriented and are are looking for because the capital structure is that it's needlessly complicated with 10 layers, and there's often between two and 400 loans in any given CLO. We're at the low end of that um, spectrum, by the way, closer to 220. Um, that's a lot of complexity, which changes the value, especially because people's assumptions on how to value those forward cash flow streams are changing. Um, these are very sophisticated investors, so they use models. They're not looking at liquidation values, they're looking at that forward cash flow stream and they're discounting it. So they're traded in a very thin market. So there's a lot of volatility. When you have something that's very complicated, it's trading from time to time, but very few players. And especially if some of them suddenly have to sell. So we know that in um, March, April, some people came under the gun because of the kind of financing arrangements that they had that they had had to be sellers. But it's... Uh, but Peter, as we sit here today, then you would generally agree with the statement that double B cash flows are money good and worth par, yet they still trade at 83, plus you get a 550 to 650 coupon. So that looks like a pretty compelling investment right now in a total return standpoint, no? Totally. Yeah. Totally. I would Which say that you're participating in, correct? We do. We, 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 uh, there's opportunities there, and, and we do uh, have a secondary fund. It's a small piece of our AUM, but um, but there's a very clear opportunity. I'll, I'll point out, though, um, the devil's in the details. So um, it's who the manager is, what their strategy is. And um, for professional investors, the underlying portfolios are available. We can actually get it. If we were considering someone else's 
if someone wanted to look at one of our CLOs, um, you could, based on our last quarterly payment date, um, you could see every single loan investment that we have in that fund or CLO. And incidentally, every BSL, broadly syndicated loan, is rated by both uh, Moody's and S&P. There's, there's a ton of information. There's research. There's a whole other subject of private side information and public side investing. I won't go into that because I don't think we have time. Um, but it's an area where uh, homework really pays off and experience pays off even more. So that would be what we refer to as a classic alpha proposition, right? The credit research, looking at private versus public. That's one of the areas where you guys generate not only beta from the asset class, but also alpha through security selection and perhaps having a bit more knowledge than the next manager that's not quite as experienced. Would that be an appropriate summary? Um, yes, it, yes, thank you. Thank you. And, and I'll just add that, um, so my background, as I said earlier, I come from the banking world. So I, I come from the world from making loans, not taking them, not taking something that someone else created It's offering you as an investor. So I would call myself more like the cook, the dishwasher, the maitre d', the waiter, and most investors as, as the people going to the restaurant ordering a la carte. So I'm more familiar with where these come from, how they come to be made, what the issues are, what kinds of information is available, um, and, and how to put the pieces. And I'll go back to when, when you asked about my background, I made the comment that I learned early that things are often not what they appear. And that motivated, motivated me early to kind of understand kind of what was going on as opposed to just the way things appeared on the surface, because I noticed in different countries that uh, it was the same reality, but people expressed it and lived it differently and, and for good reason. And, and, and that was great. And I feel a great beneficiary of that. And when I, when I found a, a career in an asset class that had a terrific continuity with great attributes of what I just been describing, safety, uh, steady, steady, ongoing cash flow and liquidity. So you can change things. You can change your mind if the facts change, change the investment profile. That's why I'm in my fifth decade of doing this. Yeah, it is a rich history. So obviously the pandemic's affected pretty much everyone on the planet. Um, it's infected or affected some investors negatively, others positively. Um, but in terms of your firm, how has it impacted your ability to put capital to work, particularly for new investments where you've raised quite a bit in the past six months? Yeah, so we were really surprised. So in March, it looked like the world possibly could end. So we immediately reevaluated every investment, stress tested, and said, oh my God, the recession's not a year or two from now. It's happening now. It might be the worst ever. In that process, we concluded that some positions we should have less of or not have any at all and, and made the adjustments because it's a liquid asset class. Um, um, but at the main conclusion was, wow, most of these borrowers are going to make it and some of them are actually quite strong. Um, so it was as if um, every person on the planet had a, a complete medical test and you could, you could know everything, you know, who's going to survive, who's going to thrive and who needs, you know, intensive care. Um, so the, the asset class suddenly had credit risk much, much more visible. And, and let me just add that there's two forms of credit risk. There's financial credit risk, how much leverage, what kind of loan agreement, um, are there covenants? Um, those types of risks are, are visible. In fact, they're hiding in plain sight. The more important risk is basic credit risk. What kind of company, what's the industry, 
um, what drives customer demand, what's their competitive position. Th those things change and are frankly mostly opaque and that's where you need to do all the work. Um, the COVID recession made basic credit risk suddenly really evident. So um, you can make much more both risk management decision on an informed basis, but also, oh, um, these are clearly survivors. These are better than survivors and they've been hugely sold off. Now prices have retraced quite a bit, but they're still discounted. So we concluded really quickly that this is a great investing opportunity. So the surprising, I said we were surprised in March, by the way, AGL, um, slow at organizing new activities, was legally formed in, in March of 2019. So not that long ago, although the firm was fully, the firm was fully formed uh, before that date, all the employees, partners, capital, bank, and all that stuff. Um, but in March of this year, 2020, we had about a little over 2 billion of assets under management in our funds. Um, um, but now we have like 4.3 going on 4.4 billion. So we've more than doubled since COVID. Why? Because of these incredibly compelling opportunities and our investing partners um, understand that and when they want their money to put, be put to work to get the benefit of um, um, more risk for, or there's slightly elevated risk across the board because of the uncertainties of social distancing from COVID and how that's changing businesses and how our economy and societies will operate, but there's way, way, way more return. So it's really incredible that your assets have doubled, more than doubled under management in six short months. Yeah, uh, it's a real tribute to the inefficiency and the opportunity of the assets that you traffic in, plus obviously the skill that you and your team have historically. Now, let's approach this from a different angle, right? There, we, we typically run across a few efficient market theorists. You know, there aren't many left, right? Because anyone that's studied markets the last 20 years, not, not even longer, you know, there's plenty of inefficiencies all the time, and they're particularly exacerbated in times of stress. But could you better explain to people or at least attempt to why even with rates this low and the Fed haven't expanded their balance sheet by three trillion, ECB not far behind, money supply growth's exploded, you know, we're 20, 21 percent more money supply now than you know coming into March. How you could still realize such attractive returns and such high coupons uh, in a backdrop where as you say, you know, LIBOR zero, 10-year treasuries, 50 to 60 basis points. IG yields, you know, one, one and a half to 1.7, Barclays Ags around 1.2. Why do you think e even in, in an environment like this, you can still continue to get such attractive yields? That is a great question. And um, I don't have a complete answer, um, um, but I can make a couple of points. Um, the first, at the most simplistic level, the asset class has always been um, in, in capital markets, Usually, if you go to the capital markets, you get the lower of whatever the execution is. It's what whatever investors are willing to buy, whatever you're offering, um, the cheapest in terms of cost to the issuer. The, the, the broadly syndicated loan market's the opposite. Um, while, the, while the prices, the new issue prices for loans change over time are driven by, as I was saying, um, fundamentals, technicals, and sentiment, it's the higher of what the banks who originated need require. By the way, their cost structures keep going up for a whole bunch of reasons, and what investors require. Now, when we talk about investors who invest in this, I said that that group's about 1.2 trillion. 
it's like eight different kinds of investors. Um, it's CLOs, it's retail funds, it's credit hedge funds, not only buy CLO securities, they also buy loans directly. It's insurance companies, it's in foreign banks. All these different investors have completely different motives, different time horizons, different ways of valuing things. Uh, almost all of them are public side. And as I said before, each loan is different. They're rated. Um, most, most investors are first influenced. Well, okay, what, you know, you're, most investors work in, a, in, in large organizations and have to explain things to the higher ups. So the higher ups are reading whatever, whatever they're reading or, or, or whatever terminal and it's saying, um, broadly syndicated loans are risky, they're private equity, CLOs uh, are highly leveraged. They have a really negative, they, they should have a halo and instead they have a stigma in terms of how they're portrayed. So at a high level, um, um, investors have to explain to the higher self like why they're doing this despite this kind of negative perception. When you have a recession, never mind one that's unprecedented because of these behavioral changes that have decimated some industries and we're just hitting the pause button. Since a year ago, triple uh, C rated assets, I mentioned all these loans are rated. The triple C contingent um, is more than double. Triple C is kind of a danger zone, danger zone. We don't intentionally, we don't invest in anything that's triple C. We could have something that becomes triple C. We have very hardly any of that, but, but the point is that's more than double. Why? Because we have a recession, there's a lot of risk and there's a lot of uncertainty. So in that environment, when I said that spreads have step shifted up, ignoring interest rates, whatever the regular way spread levels were, um, investors require more returns. So spreads have lifted because risk actually is higher. Um, if, you, if you actually get into the innards of portfolios, you, you can either create or discover, create new portfolios or discover an existing ones um, that they're really safe, that they're managed in a way that the risk profiles actually improve. They're actually safer than they were, uh, but actually have higher returns. Um, one thing I didn't mention is uh, that's really helpful. There's over a thousand borrowers in the broadly syndicated loan market. And these are mostly private companies. It's the backbone. These are the mid to large companies that are the backbone of the US economy. These are not the multinational companies that you know that you can buy a public equity in or, or an investment grade bond. These are private companies. They're not investment grade. Uh, most of them are very healthy. So it's a really inefficient, it's a terrifically inefficient space. And, and I could talk probably for days about it, including how syndicated lending um, came about, the transition from banks just making loans to the same borrowers to becoming a capital markets activity. And then it became a capital markets activity that included investors and not just banks. And that was mainly because there weren't enough banks from a risk management standpoint to, to, to finance the growth of private companies that wanted to be financed. Um, so it's, 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 it's actually quite inefficient. It has a very interesting total bank-based history. And, and of course, these are originated, um, originated by banks. Structured. That is a tremendous explanation. If I could sum it up before we turn over to John to close things out, it's basically because the banks and investors are always demanding a higher yield than they think the risk they're taking, A, and B, even though your view is that there isn't demonstrably more risk, given the increase, uh, or the, let's call it a V-shaped recovery in certain industries, 
um, investors are demanding even more return now because of the uncertainties in the world. Would that be a fair summary of those two points? Very, very good summary. I'll add one more piece to that. Then we should we should record this. Um, hey, at, the, at, at the loan level. I think we level, are, actually. I think John Darcy, maybe. <laughs> oh, we're recording at, it. At the loan sure. level, I think I mentioned that the asset class is not a broadly syndicated loan. It's all it's 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 all of them. That's what creates yes. diversity in the safety. The so diversification. Yes. If if you take a loan and we're in a riskier environment, people are demanding that loan should have more return. So they all do. If you take then if you take a big if you create a big portfolio of them um, that are generating more cash flow that funds out any possible losses, you're actually getting getting more return, which is creating more safety. So counterintuitively, um, the increase in there's an increase there's there's an increased perception of increased risk or reality of increased risk that's pushing spreads up, um, but but that but there's much more push up as you said in spreads than there is risk, and you have to have that cushion. Banks and investors have to be paid more from what they think the risk is, and when you apply that X increment on every single loan at the portfolio level, it creates a um, higher return per unit of risk. So if you had if the amount of risk that you were that you wanted or were willing to take was X, um, and you stay at X, you rebalance the portfolio. So the risk, the risk is the same. You're getting paid much more for that same level of risk, which yeah, is well, why. That's a, that's why gonna, Peter, so we're going to end it there on my end. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you and uh, learn about your background and uh, hear you articulate the compelling case for the levered loan, CLO, and broadly syndicated bank debt market. I'm going to turn it over to my partner, the managing director of SALT to close things out with some questions from the audience. Go ahead, John. Thank, Thank you, Troy. Uh, it's been a fantastic conversation. We have a couple great questions from the audience. So I'm gonna take two questions. I'm gonna put them into one uh, so we don't take too much of people's time and Peter's time. And you've been very gracious to join us, Peter. Thank you very much. Happy um, to but given your experience in building these bank loans, have you seen any shift in the underwriting language of these loans pre-COVID versus now? Have standards shifted from higher cov light as in issuances ramped up, and also, uh, you know, the returns we've discussed are historical when we had higher loan covenant standards. Do you have concerns on a go forward basis that recoveries with respect to the current loan market environment, specifically the degradation of loan covenants and lender protections, uh, especially in issuances from 2018 to 2019? Those are great questions. So first of all, um, since COVID. Um, Credits, let me say, like I said before, with credit risk, there's two kinds. There's financial risk and basic risk. Um, with with uh, credit quality and underwriting standards, there, there's two kinds. There's the quality of the documents and whether there's covenants or not. And, and separately, how rigorous and how high are the standards in terms of which borrowers, what companies get financing. So on the former, which is covenants or what people would call loose documentation, loose terms, um, there hasn't really been much change. It's, it's the same. And, and, and the main reason for that is people who invest in this know that these loans are well-structured, the borrowers are creditworthy, and, and that, that, that the math of more return for risk that I was describing is present. Um, so there hasn't been pressure from investors. Investors would like to have better uh, better documentation, um, but that hasn't happened. That hasn't happened. I don't expect it to happen. And I think there's time I can say why. More importantly, though, 
Um, I think credit standards, real credit standards, like who gets the money, have improved. Um, and I'll make two comments. One is post-COVID, the average new issuer in the broadly syndicated loan market, that means a borrower who comes to the market with a new loan, banks underwritten presenting a new loan, the average borrower um, is a larger company with less leverage, with better ratings, and is paying more. So it's a higher quality borrower. Uh, back to the first point, the, the, the documents, no, the documents have not improved, but it's a stronger borrower. The other comment I'll make is if you look at this over a 10, 20, 30 year time frame, the average borrowers over time have been improving. If you were to look at the typical leverage buyout of the 1980s, which is when I cut my teeth in really big uh, leverage finance, you'd be horrified <laughs> um, with the capital structures, how much leverage um, on, what's on, some of those, on some of those buyouts. Um, if you were to compare the current cohort of borrowers with the ones in the 06, 07 pre-financial crisis era, what you would find is um, borrowers today are, are higher quality. So the trend over time has actually been to um, higher quality, not lower quality, even though the, the terms of the documents are clearly looser. And I'll just add that that's mainly a phenomenon. Most um, um, the, the, the growth of the broadly syndicated loan investor base has been driven by the, the term is the crossover, the, the um, move of traditional high yield investors to continue investing high yield, but also to invest in loans because typically the borrower has the, the downstairs high yield bond and the upstairs already syndicated loan. Now, high yield doesn't have covenants, never seen private side information. So they, they don't, they never demanded it and, and don't need it. So that's one of the, that's a structural reason why, why covenants have effectively gone away. And, and, the, and from that standpoint, loans and bonds have converged. One knows still a security and one's still a loan. Well, Peter, thanks so much again for taking the time to join us. And Troy, thanks so much for, for taking the time to uh, to moderate today's discussion. I think it was fascinating. Peter, as you mentioned, this was recorded. So anybody who joined late or wants to clarify some of what you said, uh, they can always go to the SALT website within two or three days. We typically post these episodes on demand. But thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, it, was, it was a real pleasure to have you on, Peter. Thank you for having me. And, and thank you, audience, for, uh, for listening. And, and, and hopefully you're interested. Um, thank you.